It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, I took a quick trip to Iowa. Democratic presidential candidates only have a few days left to woo voters in the Hawkeye state before the state's caucuses on Monday night. And the senators still in the race have been stuck in D.C. for President Trump's impeachment trial. Other candidates have been looking to capitalize on their absence, including Andrew Yang. I sat down with the entrepreneur in Des Moines to talk about his signature freedom dividend. One of the premises of his campaign is that automation is decimating the American worker. If that were playing out, however, we'd expect to see it in the data with really strong GDP growth and productivity alongside sluggish employment. But instead, we seem to be seeing the exact opposite. Unemployment is at a historic low of 3.5%, while GDP growth is weak and productivity activity numbers are terrible. So I asked Yang why his theory of the case isn't showing up in the data that economists are looking at. Well, Joe, if you dig a little deeper, you see that headline unemployment is masking the fact that millions of Americans have left the workforce. Labor force participation is down to 63%, a multi-decade low, and close to the levels of El Salvador and Costa Rica. Because many people have been pushed out of the workforce, they don't see a path forward, and our headline unemployment number masks that. It also masks the fact that many Americans, because they're struggling to find the right opportunities, are working in very low productivity, low wage, low mm. advancement positions. And that's why you're seeing the productivity problems. Um, so to me, the numbers actually tell the right story if you look a little deeper. One of the things that we've seen President Trump, he's been very critical of his own Fed chair. There was criticism of Obama for not taking the Federal Reserve seriously enough. If you were president, would you reappoint Jerome Powell or would you look for a Federal Reserve uh, chairman who would dovetail more with what you're doing in terms of getting buying power into the hands of the middle and lower classes? Well, to me, job one is to get more money directly in the hands of the American people in the form of the universal basic income. And so the Fed primarily is controlling interest rates, which is one piece of the puzzle. But I'm obviously focused more on just direct cash in people's hands. Uh, and that, to me, is the most powerful thing we can do. But do you worry that if there were a increase in buying power, that we, the Federal Reserve, in its framework, would be quicker to hike rates and sort of undermine the uh, GDP growth or the growth that you would like to see as a result of the UBI? Well, to me, the, the Fed historically has had a couple of main economic goals. Uh, and I don't think those goals are inconsistent with putting money into people's hands at all. 
Um, and I would trust an, an independent Fed to be able to make the right call on interest rates. People love the idea, and polls show it, of getting $1,000 a month. There's a certain uh, undeniable as- appealing aspect of that. However, I'm not sure like, if people totally understand there, is a, there would be a trade-off. So some people would have to give up existing cash benefits. What would people have to give up in order to be eligible for the Freedom Dividend, which, as you say, is opt-in? And why make that an opt-in choice? Why not just allow people to keep what they have in terms of cash benefits for things like food stamps and then get an extra $1,000 a month on top of it? Well, the vast majority of Americans would just see $1,000 a month increase in buying power. The only people that might have to make a choice are people who are receiving direct cash assistance for things like heating oil or food stamps. And in those cases, virtually none of them are getting 1000 bucks a month right now, so this is a huge win. And when I talk to people who are recipients of these programs, they live in constant fear of losing their benefits, uh, of failing to meet some administrative or reporting requirement. So if they were getting a stress-free 1000 bucks a month, it would be a massive upgrade. And it also has no negative incentive for them to make more money because right now our assistance programs are predicated on you being below a certain income level. Let's talk about some non-UBI topics. Every debate no. that I've seen, <laughs> every kidding, debate kidding. that I've seen Sorry. seems to start off with some 30-minute discussion about health care, and I think a lot of people tune out or their eyes glaze over. But there does seem to be some ambiguity about exactly where you stand. Would people be able to keep private insurance under an Andrew Yang ideal health care system, or would it be a single-payer, single sort of system, uh, more like uh, what Bernie Sanders has proposed? We need to have universal health care in this country that's not linked to your job, because right now linking it to your job is not a great system on many, many levels, but I would not legislate away private insurance. Millions of Americans enjoy their private insurance plans. They've made choices based on those plans. To me, the onus has to be on the government to demonstrate that we can do a more effective job than private insurance companies and have Americans make that choice for themselves over time. Your campaign has, uh, you've advocated legalization of marijuana and you actually sell merch with cannabis leaves on it. We're sort of at this weird juncture where there's a lot of momentum towards liberalization of marijuana use. At the same time, there is an incredible crackdown on things like uh, nicotine, vaping, and cigarette use, I'm, or uh, vaping, tobacco use. I'm curious if you think that makes sense, and do you think it, uh, under your administration, would you continue to tighten the regulations about, say, flavored vaping products at the same time as liberalizing people's access to marijuana? Well, the flavored vaping products uh, seem to be marketed towards young people and kids in particular, and there have been a number of deaths as a result of these products. So to me, legalizing marijuana and our treatment of those products are actually two very different questions. Marijuana has been very, very effective as a means of pain relief for many, many Americans. And it's less dangerous, frankly, than the prescription opiates that have been killing Americans in record numbers for years now. So that's why I'm for legalizing marijuana. Uh, But to me, we have to figure out how to not have these vaping products marketed to kids and how to ensure that they're not literally uh, causing deaths among young people. But should adults be able to enjoy flavored vaping products, their jewel pods and so forth? Well, uh, if we can balance the public health concerns and individual agency, uh, you know, I'm not for an outright ban. So your campaign has obviously attracted very sort of uh, wide, unusual um, 
support from people who previously were disengaged or maybe they were Trump supporters or more, more, maybe they have other niche interests. There's a lot of people who are like really big cryptocurrency fans, for example, who have, uh, they love Andrew Yang. And when I talk to them, they're like, yeah, ask him about uh, crypto. What would you do with regards to regulation of that and say Bitcoin exchanges? Do you support the right of people to use their bank accounts, credit cards, et cetera, to move into cryptocurrencies and other forms of money that aren't as easily tracked by centralized authorities? Well, what I would say is that we need to have a uniform set of rules and regulations around cryptocurrency use nationwide, because right now we're stuck with this hodgepodge uh, of state-by-state treatments, and it's bad for everybody. It's bad for innovators who want to invest in this space. Uh, So that would be my priority, is just clear and transparent rules so that everyone knows uh, where they can head in the future and that we can maintain competitiveness. Because to me, uh, the underlying technology of cryptocurrencies is, is uh, very, very high potential, and we should be investing in it. But do you support uh, sort of monetary freedom for people that want to move their money away from fiat currencies, get their money out of the banking system into cryptocurrencies? Because right now, you have banks restricting payments to these uh, platforms and so forth, and people feel like government regulations are essentially impeding in their uh, desire to do that. Well, right now, uh, people who are investing in these currencies are finding a way to, uh, you know, to, to do so and and uh, make use of their investments. Uh, no, I, I don't think that you could uh, impede it with regulation if you tried. Turning to what I think is probably one of the biggest stories right now, for especially for the market, and people are very concerned uh, about it. Do you think that uh, the Trump administration so far is doing the right thing in terms of keeping America protected from the new coronavirus? Well, certainly it's encouraging that we've only had a handful of reported cases so far, but uh, the American people know that this is a very serious threat. And to the extent that different branches of government can help the CDC maintain uh, control of this virus and its spread, I think the American people would applaud that. Uh, lastly, you've become this phenomenon. I mean, a year ago, no one had ever heard well, of thanks, you. Joe. It's very now nice you're <laughs> now you're this nationally known name. Every day, there's another viral video of you, whether it's at a gospel chorus or dancing at a senior center, and people are sort of captivated by you. You're extremely popular. Uh, if wow. if that popularity doesn't translate into the White House. Do you have a vision for how either you or the sort of Yang Gang movement that is built up behind you could continue to press your interests after this campaign? The problems that have animated me and the Yang Gang are just getting bigger and stronger. Uh, And to me, my job is to help solve them and make sure that your kids and mine actually grow up in a country that we're excited to pass on to them. Uh, I think I can do the most effective job of moving our country in the right direction as president. But I'm not going anywhere because the problems aren't going anywhere and your kids and my kids aren't going anywhere. So you plan to continue to be a public figure regardless of whether that's in the White House or not? I just want to help solve these problems, Joe. Uh, Frankly, if someone else were solving all these problems and I could just kick back and hang out with my kids, that would be great. Um, I don't have some intrinsic desire necessarily to like boss around lots and lots of people. <laughs> like, 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 I mean, if, if things were getting done 
in a really, really high-level way, and I could just applaud like the rest of American citizens, that would be tremendous. But unfortunately, that's not the country we live in. Uh, that, that's why I'm running. And as long as that stays the case, and I think I can contribute, I'll still be here doing my best. Then we got a different look at Iowa from the Bernie Sanders camp. The Vermont senator has seen a surge in polling leading up to the caucuses, so we spoke with the campaign's national press secretary, Brianna Joy Gray, about their strategy and Senator Sanders' economic plans. However, I started with a bit of an admission. I have to do a disclosure here. Um, we have a 96. I volunteered for your boss in uh, his house race. So oh my I just want to get that out of the way, wow. lest anyone oh, thinks wait. there's... That was Joe Wiseman yeah, in 1996. So. How old are you? And that's Bernie Sanders <laughs> yeah. in 1996? It's just an he hasn't aged a bit. So got to get the important disclosure out All of right. the way. You love to see it. Yeah. Before we go on. So I'm curious, in the last several weeks, I think for a lot of people, the prospect of Sanders winning the nomination has started to become very real. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, in a general election, with unemployment at 3.5%, people's satisfaction of the economy, the highest where mm. it was in multiple decades by some measures, how challenging will that be to run on a message that's very much about the economy? Mm. Well, I think what average, ordinary, everyday voters realize is that even when the economy is doing well, individuals don't always feel it, right? So as Bernie Sanders says repeatedly, there are a very small handful of people, three to six people who own as much wealth as the bottom 50% of Americans. When we look at the gains economically that this country has seen, they have been distributed to the top 1% and not distributed equally among all those people who are working so hard to make that um, value uh, occur, right? So people don't need to be have their hands held and have it explained to them that even if the economy is doing well, real wages have not been going up, it's harder and harder to afford housing, people are saddled with an enormous amount of student loan debt, the interest rates on that debt are growing enormously, and that they need something to change. And if someone is going to run on nothing much changing, as Joe right. Biden has said, nothing will fundamentally change, that is not a winning message. So, but I mean, looking to uh, the general election as well, I mean, you're going up a man... I, I remember the Trump campaign used the same talking point during his campaign where they talked about this idea that unemployment really wasn't a number, it mm -hmm. was his feeling. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people, his supporters, who feel like the economy is doing well, no matter mm. what the numbers say. They feel that they've benefited. So how does Bernie Sanders reach out to those people and say that I'm the better option than the current administration? Well, if you're one of the 1% yeah. who enormously benefited from Trump's tax cuts, I believe you are feeling like the mm -hmm. economy is doing better. And his supporters actually did skew more affluent. But when I talked to a number of Americans around the country, including people who identify as Republicans and independents, remember, Bernie Sanders does better with independents than anyone else in the field and has done so historically. What they identify is a feeling of struggle, a feeling of precarity, a feeling like their dollar doesn't go as far as it used to. And that is what is really resonating with people when you look at the town halls that Bernie has been holding around the country, where people are pouring their hearts and souls out about the health care um, experiences they've been having in particular. With Again, remember, medical bankruptcy being the number one cause of bankruptcy in this country. That is a phenomenon that can't just be chalked up to you know the ups and downs of the economy. Right. That is a real long-term problem that has yet to be addressed by any of the other candidates in this race. President Trump has started to fixate on Senator Sanders mm. a little bit more this month than he had in the past. In the past, it was mainly Joe Biden, but right, right now he's really started to hone in on Senator Sanders. And of course, part of that is speaking to the white working class voters mm -hmm. that may be more vulnerable to being picked off by Senator Sanders. What's the number one reason for the average uh, President Trump supporter to consider Bernie Sanders, especially if they're 
white working class and perhaps not benefiting from the economy the way that you said the 1% is. Yeah. What I think is really interesting is that we often talk about the white working class as so their interests are completely separate and apart from those of the working classes in general. Mm. And what the Bernie Sanders campaign is doing is take, dis disrupting this idea that we can divide people up um, and pit each other, pit them against each other based on race or other identity factors and say one of the biggest shared identities in this country that has been largely ignored by both political parties is that of the working class as a whole. So when we talk to black working class work people, uh, Hispanic working class people, white working class people, they all identify health care, education, and the economy as their principal concerns. And when they're asked who is trusted most on those issues, particularly health care, Bernie Sanders again and again tops that list. Why can't Senator Sanders seem to gain traction with African Americans. Oh, I dispute that. I dispute that premise. Well, what what are his numbers like? Well, Bernie Sanders is actually number two with African American voters, and according to a recent poll, African Americans were built about evenly divided between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden when they when they were asked who they were most likely or open or willing to vote for. So there's a lot of gains for Bernie Sanders there, and he has already demonstrated that he has a much better ability to connect with Black voters than any candidate in this race other than Joe Biden, who of course is benefiting from a lot of name recognition mm. and being the vice president to our first. Black, black president. Uh, one of your competitors, obviously, Elizabeth Warren, was really dogged for a long time about the question, how are you going to pay mm -hmm. for all of your plans? And there is this perception that the Sanders campaign hasn't put forth as detailed uh, plans mm. in terms of matching spend expenditures and tax revenue dollar for dollar the mm. same way Warren has. Is there going to be more flesh on the bones in terms of uh, Sanders' tax and spending plans at some point? Well, I'd like to remind you, it's Bernie Sanders that wrote the damn bill, right? When we're talking about what the actual legislation is, who's, put, who's done the hard work of writing what Medicare for All, when we're talking about Medicare for All, there are a lot of people who have taken that name and tried to, um, uh, to brand their campaigns with that very popular moniker. But the reality is it's only Bernie Sanders that has written the legislation that is currently before the Senate that is, in fact, Medicare for All. And it's not that he hasn't been asked the question, how can you pay for it? He has been asked and he gave an answer that was clear enough and direct enough that people didn't feel like they had to we keep repeating the answer to get the, to the bottom of what the truth is. Bernie Sanders has been transparent about the fact that we, with a small tax raise that's lower than what people are currently paying for, co-pays, premiums, and deductibles, they can have full, free, point-of-service care in the way that every other industrialized country in the world provides for its citizens. We are currently paying twice as much for not the same quality of care that other people get across the world. And he's just, I think, been more persuasive and clear about getting that message across. I want to ask you a question about a controversy over the last couple of days. The Sanders campaign trumpeting the fact that the popular podcaster Joe Rogan said that he was likely to vote for Sanders mm. in the primary. People have criticized mm. the fact that the campaign trumpeted that, given various controversial things uh, Rogan has said in the past about people who are trans mm. and so forth. How do you view who gets to, uh, I mean, anyone can vote for anyone who wants, but how do you, where do you draw the line in terms of who gets to, whose support gets to be uh, amplified? Mm -hmm. Well, look, I think that when you have a big tent multiracial coalition like we have, right, we have the most working class, the most diverse constituency of anybody in this race. There are going to be people in this tent that don't agree with every aspect of Sanders' policy, but what's important is that Bernie Sanders, unlike some politicians in the past, did not change anything about what he stands for to solicit the the endorsement of someone like Joe Rogan. Instead, Bernie Sanders has the most robust policy for trans people in this race. He's the only one who is supporting a Medicare for all that would include transition surgery for trans people, um, hormone therapy, 
full mental health care for everyone in this country and who has a plan for homelessness, which one out of every five trans people experiences during their lives. I think folks are, need to look at what is, is being done to uh, elicit this kind of support and really be uh, have maintain skepticism about candidates who right. would change who they are to get support and be really clear about the fact that Bernie Sanders has not done that. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Then Scarlett sat down with Bing Chen, the co-founder and chairman of Gold House, a nonprofit that created the hashtag Golden Open Movement. The Golden Open Movement drives U.S. audiences to the theater through social media and ticket buying and has been trying to replicate the box office success of Asian-led films from Crazy Rich Asians to The Farewell and Parasite with a helping hand from a group of Asian creative leaders. Gold House is the largest collective of Asian cultural leaders in the country. Uh, we're comprised of C-suite partner, president-level executives, A-list celebrities, and Olympic-level athletes, as well as successfully exited founders. So founders of Twitch, to YouTube, to Hulu, and so forth. Uh, we're devoted to two very simple things. Number one is, how do we fortify the relationships and resources of all these influential folks so that, two, we can actually scale those resources to systems that benefit the masses? Not just of Asian descent, but really of all descents, right? Uh, how do we have that integrative impact? Um, my biggest, actually, in the analog is what the African diaspora has successfully done with the hip-hop and R&B institutions, mm -hmm. right? Uniquely of the African diaspora, and actually a certain subset of the African diaspora, but both institutions employ and enjoyed are, are enjoyed by billions around the world. I think that's the level of success we want to have. Um, as far as Gold Open, we effectively spent nine months meeting with 300 of the top Asian leaders, including director John M. Chu of Crazy Rich Asians. And we asked them, if we were to reverse millennia's worth of Asians not supporting Asians and looking to our counterparts in the Israeli diaspora and African diaspora and built that, Mm -hmm. What would it be? Mm -hmm. And by no coincidence, everyone said the same things. So one of the principal sort of success mechanisms was we were not properly represented in media. They are emasculating men. They are denigrating women, so forth and so on. How do we recorrect that, mm -hmm. right? And so very luckily and thankfully, we had this incredible gift of crazy rich Asians. Um, and so like all of our ventures, we effectively studied what other communities had done successfully. So the African diaspora in the late 80s, early 90s, as well as women in the early 2000s, basically mask rallied to theaters opening weekend. They did this because because they realize, one, in entertainment, film is still the high art. Everyone still looks to film, despite mm -hmm. what's happening in a lot of other sectors. Right? Despite the fragmentation and the disintermediation. 100 percent. Despite the lower box office numbers mm -hmm. in many cases, film is still the high art, and arts has to speak for itself. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, second is opening weekend is a paramount importance because it dictates further longevity. Right. Okay. Um, so forth and so on. So we effectively adapted those models that other communities had done and refined it for our own. Okay. So you buy out movie theaters essentially to make sure it has a strong opening. Some people might call that fake demand, manufactured demand. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the case? It's a great question. So actually a minority of what we do now is buying out theaters. Uh, the majority is what we call mass mobilization. So we have an enormous network of top nonprofits, top Asian employees who are just passionate at major corporations, you know, maybe tired of their day jobs sometimes, um, several celebrities. And we all instinctively now know that opening weekend, you have to physically go to the theater. Now, there's still, again, some buying just to stoke some sort of activation but, um, uh, or early momentum, but the majority is absolutely just group going. Mm -hmm. You mentioned um, diversity as part of the goal because there's not enough representation of Asians in mass media. Is diversity the goal or is 
success, financial success for any given Asian-led creative project the goal? Yeah, the, the answer is of course all the above, right? Accurate representation can lead to proper success, but proper success, especially in the color of green, as you know, can also lead to more diversity. Um, and we're not naive to think that everyone should just give us a handout because of social causes, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so the, the answer is absolutely both. Um, yeah, I guess that's... <laughs> okay, that's fine. Well, Asians in America Elaborate. make the distinction between those who are born here, lived here, and raised here versus uh, those who are in Asia, who are part of a hegemony somewhere else. Absolutely. Does Gold Open make that distinction, I ask, because I wonder how you decide which support, which films to support. If a film is Asian-led and has an Asian subject usually, Gold Open will support it. And we're actually launching something early next year to make that even clearer and objective. Uh, we are absolutely inclusive of the four and a half billion of Asians worldwide. Why? A, we absolutely believe that the Asian American narrative is critical, but mm -hmm. B, we also know their strength in numbers. Right. And if we can actually hedge on global distribution, particularly with the Asian diaspora in Asia, I think that's something very interesting, or, or the Asians in Asia, I should say. Um, one paramount example of that is Paramount this, or Parasite this year. Parasite's actually the highest per theater average opening weekend performance of any film this year. Of course, this is by director Bong Joon-ho, who's mm -hmm. a visionary and from CJ Entertainment. The entire film is in Korean, mm -hmm. right? And yet it's the highest performing in English-speaking country in many cases. Cases, right? Um, so we're absolutely inclusive. Now, how is this effort funded? Because all this takes a lot of money, certainly a lot of time. Is it all donations from individuals, from prominent Asian Americans in the entertainment world, the business world, the tech world? So glad you asked. We actually are completely bootstrapped. So we actually have very little money right now. Um, this is actually bootstrapped on, on the strengths of dozens and dozens of passionate volunteers around the country, uh, whether they're hedge fund leaders like uh, Yao King, who leads our East Coast uh, operations, uh, or many, many others. Um, I think people are just excited about, number one, the thoughtfulness of delivery. I think, mm -hmm. secondly, is the consistency of success. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, thirdly, is we're trying to, again, mold this culture of Asians supporting Asians instinctively. So we just have this incredible base of people who are not only generous with their time, but generous with their non-capital in-kind resources, right? One of our latest initiatives, which launches in November, is uh, Gold Rush. Gold Rush is a promotional and support system for Asian founders. We have a litany of top venture capitalists, uh, editorial promotion, uh, as well as thought leaders in design, whether it's Philip Lim, Prabal Grung, or editor-in-chief of Lure, uh, uh, Michelle Lee, uh, who are donating their generous advice, as well as their promotional power to ensuring that these Asian founders are successful. Um, this does not cost money. It costs political capital which, as you know, is extremely important, yeah. arguably even more expensive, and actually lasts longer, too. Yeah. Now, what does Gold House do when it comes to increasing Asian representation, not just um, at, in front of the camera, right, but also behind the camera, when it comes to leadership positions, when it comes to, let's just say in the entertainment industry, the, the writer's room, the director's chair? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, I go back to an RBJ quote, of we can have it all, just not all at once. So eventually, we do absolutely want to empower the people who are in real decision-making mm. sort of seats, right? Um, so two examples of this are, one, we've actually, or the collective has actually financed several different films, as well as several different sort of writers, directors, and producers in their own efforts. Um, and as you know, that takes care of the supply side, demand side is taken care of by gold open. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly is we absolutely support and endorse several incredible nonprofit organizations that are tackling this problem in a thoughtful way, uh, notably the Coalition of Asian Pacifics and Entertainment, which I'm also vice chairman of. Um, so they actually have two different fellowships focused on writers and executives, because mm -hmm. as you know, uh, diversity really begins in writers' rooms and corner offices, right, as opposed to on the screen where it's too late. Um, so we absolutely support organizations like that as well. Um, I so think there's a lot of overlap there to, and, and a lot of working together absolutely. as a result. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Your focus at right now is Asian-led projects. 
projects, creative projects. Uh, the next phase will be to support more what you call new majority creative projects. What does that mean and what groups does that encompass? Yeah, absolutely. New majority effectively stipulates those who are historically minorities but are suddenly majority. So Asians are actually the easiest example of this. We will be the second largest minority in the next few decades. We are the fastest growing immigrant population already, right? Um, and so it's just a matter of, you know, how do we elevate and how do we reimagine contextual society for this new sort of face of America, this new face of the world? Um, the, the second and third ideas are Gold Open and all of what Gold House does is never intended just to support Asians. We're trying to build templated models that others can benefit from and then ship out. Uh, we're not proprietary in that sense, right? Um, so we're already sharing this model with the African diaspora and other communities that we've sort of ironically also learned from. Mm. Um, the third thing I'll say is we're thinking very thoughtfully about how do we now expand to other communities. Uh, as you know very well, 50% of the box office in the United States is actually controlled by the Latinx, the Asian, and the African diasporas, period. So if you're a studio executive and trying to think efficiently about marketing, you actually don't have to go broad in many cases. You can actually just go to three communities. You can and go very niche. You can go very niche and therefore become mainstream, which is, I think, a life lesson, right? Uh, be very focused and then you have find success. So we are thinking thoughtfully about what are those other films or sort of artistic efforts that we can support in other communities, not only for social causes, but also because there's a transactional imperative to these projects. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one example that's always inspiring to us is Lena Waithe, um, you know, incredible Emmy-winning writer, producer, actress, you know, multi-hyphenate, consistently supports other communities, whether mm-hmm. it's the Asian community, where she's bought out several theaters, mm-hmm. uh, the LGBTQIA community, and so forth. So we want to make sure that we reciprocate and, and can lead that as well. How aware of this structure that you've built up is the is the Hollywood mainstream, um, the leadership <laughs> there? I mean, do they mind it? Do they work with you? Or are they taken aback by it? We collaborate very intimately with nearly every major studio and independent distributor. Um, we are not naive to think that, oh, you know, the system doesn't understand us. We're going to go our own way. A lot of us grew up and helped build some of the biggest companies in the world, and we know that real change has to happen at all levels, top to bottom, left and right. Uh, and so we work incredibly intimately with all of them. Uh, to be honest, the big studios, who I think some may you know, have an adverse reaction to, are actually our greatest collaborators. I mean, Warner Brothers and Tara Potts there, who's SVP of Multicultural, gets an enormous amount of credit for listening to different communities and helping us activate what is now Gold Open. Um, So, yes, we like them. (laughs) (laughs) We like them and we work with them. them Any plans to expand beyond uh, mass culture, mass representation, media representation? What about something like grassroots politics? Great question. So, um, in terms of our... um, uh, Better, we call them our better life systems. So we think the better lives are defined by what we call the trinity. So more accurate representation. So this is gold open media and so forth. Second is more transactional success. This is gold rush, our investment syndicate and all that. And then third is physical longevity, mm-hmm. right? And we're actually doing something meaningful with the census and the US government there on longevity because the first step to living forever is making sure people know you're actually here, right? Um, that would so, help. Yeah, exactly. So we think that with these three combined, which were again created by our incredible membership base, uh, we'll be able to realize some semblance of sort of transactional and sort of policy-oriented success. Um, Outside of that, we do have plans to scale globally. Um, So we'll be scaling internationally next year. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, the lens that we do that is is a little bit different from what we've done here. Um, But there's a lot of momentum. I think globally, the diaspora is really enthused and excited, not about making Asians successful to make Asians successful, but showing the world what our people can do, just Mm -hmm. as we have done for thousands of years. Now, your own background, this is a part-time job. This is a passion project. This is a passion project because you have a full-time job, right? You helped build up YouTube. uh, You're in VC right now. How involved is the Asian American tech community, business community, 
uh, political community in everything that Goldhouse is trying to do. Yeah, so extremely involved. Um, so Goldhouse is focused on four uh, cultural industries to date, and the reason why is they cr endemically cross-pollinate, and they're honestly kind of universally innocuous and sexier. So uh, they're media, entertainment, technology, lifestyle, and finance. Mm -hmm. So actually, several of our co-founders created some of the biggest platforms in the world. One of our principal co-founders, Kevin Lin, is a founder of Twitch, right? Mm. Um, so they're intimately involved. I think their their involvement is, is not just valuable from sort of a superficial perspective. Tech is cool, right? It's more so from their systems thinking and helping us realize how do you make a cultural movement not only scale to the highest level, but also last over time. I think that's why Gold Open has been so successful in supporting more than a dozen films because of that tech thinking. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.